Money FM 89.3. Best of your money. Money and me on your money. Only on Money FM 89.3. We're definitely looking out for your investing success. Tony Sycamore is APEC analyst for City Index. Joining me today, how has Russia made its ruble the world's top performing currency? Is the fallout from terror good for Bitcoin? And what does Australia's new Labour government mean for your portfolio? Those are just some of the questions that we're going to put to Tony Sycamore. Good morning, Tony. Good morning, Michelle. It's great to speak with you again, Tony. Tony Sycamore is joining us live from Sydney. So we must start with Australia's federal elections. The incoming government faces a number of economic problems, from rising inflation to slowing economic growth. Tony, tell us, how are markets reacting to your incoming Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, and Labour's incoming government? Well, the the market reaction has been a little bit muted so far, Michelle. We're currently still counting votes. At this point of time, it looks like the ALP has 76 seats, which is the amount needed for a majority government here in the House of Representatives. There is still four seats which are very, very closely contested. But my gut feel is that the ALP will have that majority government, which will help them, obviously, to push through their policies. Now, in terms of forms here between the Liberal National Party and the Australian Labor Party, Mm. the economic policies were not too dissimilar. The ALP have more focus on uh, renewable energy, so that's probably where one of the main points of difference is. But The ALP really learnt the lesson from the 2019 election, which was Bill Shorten, who was the ALP leader at the time. And he suggested some very, very controversial policies, including uh, the treatment of franking credits, capital gains concessions and changes to negative gearing, which although the polls in the lead up suggested the ALP were eschewing, when the push came to the shove, the electorate didn't like those changes and they pushed back on Bill Shorten this time around. Anthony Albanese learned the lessons from 2019 and it looks like to me that will see that we already know that he's been uh, appointed as the Prime Minister, but it should be with a majority government here in Australia. So is it business as usual over in Australia? Yeah, yeah very much so it mm. is, Michelle, because as we said, the economic policies weren't that different. They're inheriting an economy which is running pretty hot over here. We've got the jobless rate at the lowest level since the 1970s. We've got inflation creeping higher. The RBA is on a path of interest rate tightening and quantitative tightening as well. So there is some constraints which they need to be mindful of at a domestic level. But of course, at the macro level or at the global level, there's extremely confronting challenges out there as well. Not least of all, the war in Ukraine, the lockdowns in China, which plays a big part in our trading patterns here in Asia. All those sorts of things, inflation, aggressive central bank tightening, are out of the government's here control in many, many ways. So at the end of the day, they are going to be a little bit bound by what they can do, by where we are in the business cycle and by those global constraints, which we just touched on a few moments ago. So I'm looking at your note this morning, Tony, and you say the Aussie dollar, US dollar closed flat, flattish, down about 0.11%. Yesterday, the Australian dollar was on a tear. What do you see in terms of the performance of the Aussie dollar moving ahead? It's in a really interesting situation here, Michelle. It's been supported overnight, got back above 71 cents. For two main reasons, the US dollar index has come off the boil a little bit because there is concerns now where the reserve currency uh, 
safe haven really is. Is it in the US dollar or is it in the Japanese yen or is it in the Swiss franc? Because the US economy, the data held up very well there in April, but in May the data started to turn there and as fears of recession start to grow, the concern is there, do you leave your money in the US dollar or do you leave your money in the Swiss franc or the Japanese yen? And I think the market's become more mindful of that decision now and what that means is the US dollar has fallen about 2.5% over the past week as the market, the dollar's had a wonderful, wonderful run. So there is some profit taking going through on that side of the equation. For the Aussie dollar, we're seeing more and more measures being announced by China as well. Stimulus measures, there is prospects of more. We saw this morning that the GDP forecast for 2022 by a big European investment bank has been cut to 3%. Now, bearing in mind China grew at 8.1% last year, Chinese authorities target a growth rate of around 5.5%. They have got a huge amount of work to do given the fact that they're still pursuing COVID zero. And I think there is some doubt that they can actually do it. As we said, if the GDP cut to 3% is very, very aggressive. But to counter that, Chinese authorities have announced measures, 33 new measures were announced yesterday to get that stuttering economy going again, but still with a lot of work to do. Now, the fact that stimulus is pushing, starting to push through, that's seen as a very, very good thing for commodity prices and not least of all iron ore, which is Australia's biggest export. And that has translated through into the Aussie dollar pushing back above 71 cents. Tony, help us understand what the changes in your country's government could mean for what's ahead for Australia-China relations. Are you anticipating any sort of reset there? Well, I think the market is hopeful and maybe the populace as well because we know that diplomatic relations between Australia and China broke down when the Australian government called for an inquiry into the origins of COVID. And there really hasn't been any communication between the two respective governments since that point of time. With a fresh leader, there is hopes that we can start to hold a dialogue with China. I say that with bated breath because the first thing that we saw Anthony Albanese do yesterday, he was basically, his first job was as part of the Quad Alliance, which is part of the US, Australia, Japan and India, the democratic societies here in, in Asia. To, and the real, I guess, premise of that is to counter China's influence. So on one hand, we're hopeful that there can be more dialogue between the two. However, the first step wasn't that positive, unfortunately. So whether it can actually right that ship remains to be seen. All right, switching gears now to foreign currency. How exactly has Russia made its ruble the world's top performing currency? Quite a fall in March when we saw the ruble plunge to about 150 to the dollar. It's come a long way since. Michelle, I've been in currency markets for a very long time and how this has played out over the past two to three months is absolutely staggering. And as you mentioned, the ruble plunged to a low of around 150 to the dollar on March the 7th. And, and that prompted a range of measures from the Russian Central Bank that have allowed the ruble to become the strongest performing currency globally. And the measures they've introduced has been everything from jacking up interest rates from 9.5% to 20%, effectively doubling interest rates to protect that ruble. And they have been successful in requesting or forcing European buyers of particularly gas to pay in rubles. And that has flowed through into the currency. In fact, last night, when we're looking at what dollar-ruble did, it appreciated by another 4 to 5% in one night alone, which is 
uh, it's amazing these moves now the, the way they're playing through to the point now where Russian authorities are taking measures to limit ruble strength. And one of the measures they've announced is they've reduced the percentage of export earnings that corporates need to convert into rubles from around 80% to 50%. So they really jacked that percentage up because they wanted to see, obviously a lot of commodities are priced in US dollars. They then translate that currency transaction back into rubles. They were making these corporates translate or transact 80% of those back into rubles. Now, that's made the Russian ruble just too strong. It is going to stifle the economy, probably not how it was originally intended to back in March, but it has got to the point now where a very strong ruble can stifle the economy in a different way than was intended. So they have cut that rate back to 50%. Whether it works or not remains to be seen. What a dramatic recovery. Just amazing. Let's look at the outlook for the US dollar and the Japanese yen. Yeah, absolutely. Well, dollar-yen has been on an absolute tear through March and April, pushed up towards 130, 135-ish, but started to stall up around that area. Mm. And it was, it's been a wonderful trade for the macro community as a whole. It's been supported by this brilliant central bank divergence in place, a very, very hawkish Federal Reserve and a very, very dovish Bank of Japan. And, and that's been behind the rally in dollar-yen. However... Where we're starting to see a little bit of concern for this story is not so much that the divergence is, is going anywhere soon, but the fact that twofold, the market is very, very short the yen, and that, as we know, can lead to uh, the, everybody in a boat running to the other side of the boat very, very quickly if something changes. And in terms of what that potential change might be, as we mentioned at the top of the interview, there is now concern that the US dollar isn't the right place to hold your reserves at this point of time. Sure, it was king through April when the data was holding up, but through May, the data started to slow. And as talks of a recession and the aggressive tightening by the Federal Reserve to the point where there is a fear now that they might break something, the view now is becoming, look, dollars had a really good run. Potentially, we should be putting some of our reserves into the Japanese yen and the Swiss franc. Tony, what do you see when you look at the charts for Bitcoin trading at about 29,900? And when you see, when you track the collapse of Terra, is that a good thing for Bitcoin? Absolutely. I am very, very positive in terms of what the collapse of Terra means for Bitcoin. We speak about safe haven flows and the flight to quality in a currency sense, which is also playing out, I think, in a crypto sense. Mm. The fact that we've seen this overvalued and overhyped, some of these altcoins start to fall quite heavily and of course Terra went to basically zero, I think it promotes there's always going to be followers of cryptocurrencies that want to hold an allocation of their net wealth in crypto assets. It might be 2%, it might be 20%. For some people, it might be closer to 100%. That depends on the individual. But there is a very, very good argument to have at least a portion of your investments in a digital currency. And in that term, right now, if you're looking to put your money into a digital currency, Bitcoin comes to the fore. It's 44% of the market cap. I mean, admittedly, the market cap of the crypto asset space has dropped from $3 trillion down to about $1.3 trillion over the past four to five months. But mm. if you are looking to put some money in, with Bitcoin sitting around 30000 and there was certainly some signs of capitulation at that 25400 low we saw about a week and a half ago, uh, positioning to me seems to suggest that the market is now a little bit cleaner in terms there was obviously some leverage shelling which got spat out the other side on that capitulation. But with positioning a little bit cleaner and with that, I think, continued trend into digital assets, at least a portion of a net worth, then I think the only place to be looking right now is at Bitcoin. And what is your short-term target for Bitcoin, Tony? 
Well, providing it can hold that 25,400 capitulation low, I look for it to grind up towards 36,000, potentially up towards 40,000. Now, that also fits with my view of US equities, as we've discussed previously, Michelle. We know that the correlation between Bitcoin and the NASDAQ is extremely high at present and likely to continue. And I think what we started to see on Friday night in the NASDAQ and the S&P 500 was the start of a short covering rally. There's really good signs of basing in those stock indices. I would be watching to see if the S&P can get back above 4,100 because I think if it gets above 4,100, that could trigger a more aggressive short covering rally up towards 4,300. Obviously, the NASDAQ goes with the S&P 500, which also takes Bitcoin back up towards somewhere around 36,000, possibly up towards 40,000. But in the meantime, we just let the dust settle for, for the crypto asset space. And it's going to be up to US equities to do the work there, because I think people are a little bit hesitant now to get or to, to dip their toe back in the water. Yeah. But if they start to see Bitcoin pushing up above 32,000, 33,000, then that will bring back the buying momentum. Always insightful. Tony Sycamore there. Tony, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Michelle. Thank you for having me. That's Tony Sycamore, APEC analyst for City Index. This is Money and Me. Before acting on the information on Money FM, please consider if it's suitable for your own investment objectives, financial situation, and risk tolerance. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download our audio app. That's A W E D I O. Available on Google Play or the App Store.